Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be together and to take a look at this most important of all institutions that you have instituted in in this world, and that is the family. And we know that this is a precious institution of yours that you have designed to do a great work. And Father, we know also that there is a great controversy happening. And as we take a look at the cultural agenda, as we look at the family, public enemy number one, we just pray that you would give us uh, an understanding of the urgency of the times in which we live, and that we would all the more, with, with fullness of heart and energy and passion, seek again for your blueprint, your method of how to do family. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with a question. What do you think are the three biggest events in the history of redemption? And I, w- I, I want to say the three biggest redemptive events in the history of redemption. So after Adam and Eve in the fall, what are the three biggest and most redemptive, massively important epochs or eras or events in the history of the world? And that, that could include now or in the near future. Yeah, Jesus' first coming. They said the birth. I would, can we count the birth and the crucifixion, the incarnation, the resurrection, and the ascension all as one? That's the most important, right? That's the easy one. Can you think of another one? Okay, the flood was very destructive. It cleansed the earth of sin so that God could bring about what? Yes, the Messiah. And then I would add, you want to add another one? Yeah, you know, the Messiah came through the people of Israel, right? And so when God cleansed the earth of, of, of sin and sinners, you know, all but eight, of course, of his, his redeemed, his faithful, you then had them leading on to Abram, who brought us to the point of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and, and the 12 tribes, and then Israel. So the Exodus happens. Why is the Exodus so important? Well, that was the time where God gave the law. He brought his people out of, Israel, out of Egypt. He made them a people unto himself and brought them into Canaan and started this massive movement that, which would then lead to the Messiah. So I would say the whole Exodus and the Ten Commandments and the law and God establishing his people. That one, the first coming of Jesus. And how about right now and the second coming? The judgment and second coming. We'll loop that together as one era. Those, I would, I would suggest, are the three biggest... The formation of his people, Israel, and the giving of the law, the first coming of Christ, and the judgment and second coming of Christ. Now, why share this at the beginning of a message on the family? Well, if you notice something interesting about these three biggest events in the history of redemption, you start to see a trend. And the first thing I want to ask you is, do you remember who it was that that saved Moses' life when he was a baby in the basket boat who was hiding right there in the bushes? Okay, it was his sister Miriam, a little girl, a child. Who was it that pronounced Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord at Jesus' first coming, who was in the temple courts pronouncing these things? The children. Have you ever read this quote from Testimony 6? As the children sang in the temple courts, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, so in these last days. So the third one. Here we are. So in these last days, children's voices will be raised to give the last message of warning to a perishing world. Amazing. Now, if you think about this also on the flip side, what's the devil going to do with that information? He knows that children play a key role in God's kingdom and in God's plan. So what does he do? What did Pharaoh pronounce at the time of Moses? Yeah, death upon all the children and all the baby boys in, in Israel. How about at the first coming of Jesus? Did Herod do something similar? Same exact edict, right? Are the children in and around Bethlehem? How about in our day? You know, this session is entitled, The Family, Public Enemy Number One. 
Why is it that the devil would have an attack upon the children? Well, it happened the first two times. We can count on it again the third time. And usually when I present on this topic, I I take it along the lines of the spiritual assault upon the minds of our children. And we talked about that yesterday in the message called Schooled, the Worldly Schooling Agenda. And the whole Media on the Brain seminar is about that to a great degree, about the children, the youth, and really all of us, and how the media is seeking to capture our minds. But there's another aspect to this. There are children being killed today. Did you know that less, that, that only one in five children survive, make it out of the womb in America today? I'm sorry, four in five. One in five is killed. Yeah, that would be even worse, wouldn't it? One in five is killed. Only four in five make it out of the womb and survive. How about this statement? When heavenly intelligences see that men are no longer permitted to present the truth, the Spirit of God will come upon the children, and they will do a work in the proclamation of the truth which the older workers cannot do because their way will be hedged up. Did you hear that? There's going to be laws. There's going to be restrictions. The older members of the church will not be able to do the work of God in the way that we normally could. In the very last days, there will be persecution. There will be limitations. But the children will be able to do it. Reading on with the quote. It says, in the closing scenes of this earth's history, many of these children and youth will astonish people by their witness to the truth, which will be born in simplicity, yet with spirit and power. In the near future, many children will be endued with the spirit of God and will do a work in proclaiming the truth to the world that at that time cannot well be done by the older members of the church. That's why the devil wants to attack the family, capture the minds of the children, and to the extent possible, kill as many of them as he can. And by the way, when I bring up the topic of abortion, this is not meant as some sort of heaping of guilt and, and, and burden upon somebody who has taken this act and made the, engaged in this sin. The Lord has forgiven all of our sins and cleansed us of our iniquities if we've repented, right? So there's no sin that he's like, nah, sorry, you've gone beyond, beyond my uh, grace on that one. So let's just keep that in mind, as this can be a very sensitive thing. But the media and the culture is very much pushing this and celebrating this, not just as a right. You know, that became the the big rights issue in the 1970s, that somebody ought to have the right to choose these things, and it was kind of a political football. But today, it's being celebrated. It's being pushed. There was a whole movement after the um, Planned Parenthood scandal of last year, where all these, you know, hidden camera videos came out, and they were, you know, uh, negotiating donations for, you know, fetal tissue and all of that. that. That was a big scandal. And then all of a sudden, the other side of this said, hey, wait a minute, let's, let's react by promoting it. And so they started a hashtag, shout your abortion. And they started celebrating and promoting. When I had this procedure done, it was so liberating and good. And I feel so happy about what I've done. And it was something that people were then bragging about instead of something that, you know, it, as it used to be said, it was kind of a, you know, kept quiet thing. And it's a personal choice. And we don't want to necessarily promote it. But, but today it's being advocated. There was this TV show, Scandal. I've never seen the show, but I, I saw this on a news report last winter, and it, it was absolutely horrifying to, to read the script of what was going on. It was uh, in, in primetime entertainment drama television, an actual enacted scene of an abortion taking place, and the, the song that was being played while the scene was being portrayed was Silent Night. Now think about that for a second. Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright. And then round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild. There's a song being played. And then the, the, the background uh, script is her father's voice going through her head saying, family is a burden, a pressure point, soft tissue, an illness, an antidote to greatness. You think you're better off with people who rely on you, depend on you, but you're wrong. Because you will inev- inevitably end up needing them, which makes you weak, pliable, Family doesn't complete you, it destroys you. 
Can you believe the message coming from the culture to the youth of today? Family is a burden, a soft tissue, an illness. In fact, you read in sociological textbooks of the, the academics of our day, and they say that the family is a, is a bygone, archaic notion. It's a social construct from an oppressive patriarchal era, and it's something that needs to be done away with completely. You have on the Black Lives Matter website that the, the, one of the goals of this movement is to, to disrupt the nuclear family. So there's a whole aggressive agenda from all quarters, from entertainment, from political movements, from academic, saying that the family is something that needs to be disrupted, taken down. It's an illness. It's not a good thing. Now, this uh, next quote that you're about to see while we're on the topic of the um, annihilation of these millions of, of babies, this was an actual uh, abortionist sort of conference where they have a lot of uh, abortion providers taking part and listening to messages and speeches, and this, this one... Uh, presenter, her name is Lisa Harris, said the following to uh, abortion providers. Ignoring the fetus is a luxury of abortion activists and advocates. So she's saying, uh, you know, our pro-choice friends out there who don't really talk that much about the fetus, they have that luxury. But she says, you can't ignore the fetus, right? Because the fetus is the marker of how well, how, how good of a job you did, right? If you don't account for all the parts and you don't look carefully, you may be setting someone up for an infection or hemorrhage or whatever. The, feeder, the fetus matters clinically to us. Not to mention that women know what's in there. You know, about two-thirds, over 60% of women are already mothers, and the remainder don't want to be mothers. They're not stupid. They know what's in there. I actually think it should be less about denying the reality of those images and more about acknowledging. Listen to what is being acknowledged now by this movement. It says, yeah, that's kind of true. So given that we actually see the fetus the same way, speaking of we see this, this, this baby, this fetus, the same way that pro-lifers do, and given that we might actually both agree that there's violence in here, let's just give them all, it's violence, it's a person, it's killing. That's quite an admission, isn't it? That didn't used to be the argument. Back in the 70s, it was just, it's just a blob of tissue. Let's kind of move along and, and allow this and, and, and quietly uh, ignore what that baby really is. But now there's an acknowledgement. Hey, we are engaging in acts of violence. This is a person and we're killing it. Him, her. Let's just give them all that. The quote goes on. Let's just give them all that. And then the more compelling question is, why is this the most important thing I can do with my life? So... We're acknowledging what this really is. It's an act of violence and killing a person. Why is this the most important thing I can do with my life in that context? I don't think it needs to be about correcting facts. I think it needs to be about moving the conversation to a different place. Quite an admission, right? But moving away from that into another, another theme, is, it seems to get even crazier. Salon Magazine has been promoting uh, pedophilia. I'm not a pedophile. I'm a pedophile, but not a monster, writes Todd Nickerson for Salon Magazine. And he goes on and tells his story about how he became of this, you know, what, the, what he calls his sexual orientation. He says this orientation needs to be accepted and heard and listened to and understood, not to, not to endorse. He says, I, I, I won't act on it, but you need to understand and accept this orientation. So this is the next step. You know, I, I heard people kind of, you know, uh, what I thought was kind of an alarmist message sometimes where they're going, you know, if we allow the, the gay marriage issue to move forward and we're going to end up with what's next, they're going to allow this and they're going to allow that and they're going to allow this. And I'm going, okay, really? Is it going to go there? And, and so in 2015, when they flashed the, uh, the rainbow image up on the White House and the Supreme Court put down the, the decision saying no state may 
may prohibit gay marriage. Every state must allow homosexual marriage to take place. The, the movement just continued to accelerate to the point where we're literally reading in Salon magazine about accepting pedophilia as a sexual orientation so long as the person doesn't act upon it, that this is not some sort of uh, illness or, or, or dysfunction within the person. This is, is something that they are, and we have to accept what they are. And so you now get the Catholic Church coming out saying bishops do not have to report child abuse, Vatican says. UK Independent reported. They, ju- they said, you know, we want to just simply handle this in-house and not have this become a, a legal issue. Don't, don't report it. Now, if you go back in history, uh, a couple of generations, this is, this is way before my time, but maybe some of you remember the time where even in entertainment culture, and entertainment culture was never good, but even in entertainment culture, there was a promotion of the family. It was family units that were promoted in sitcoms. And you had the, the Cleaver family, right, and Leave it to Beaver. And you had Father Knows Best. I mean, can you imagine a show today being called Father Knows Best? I mean, how, how stereotypical and how, how uh, you know, misogynistic and, and, and anti-woman, that might sound, right? But, you know, the idea of the patriarchal father figure where, where you have a, you know, the house band, as, as the word husband means, and this, this the, you know, person in the household that is the head of the, of the house, that was just, just a half a century ago, this was, this was promoted. Now, now, fast forward two generations, and you get to Will Smith's son is the new face of Louis Vuitton's women's wear campaign. Yes, you read that right. Along with the ladies promoting the latest fashions, you have a boy dressed, and not, not I'm transgender, I'm this, I'm that. It's just I'm going to break all the boundaries and push the envelope of everything. And, hey, I'm just going to do this because I feel like doing this. Can you, can you see how quickly, overnight, things have really been on the march and on the move? But how did we get there? You know, there was kind of a, 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 over a generation, you had the demotion of the role of male figure. In the generation I grew up in, in the 80s, you had Al Bundy, you had Tim the Toolman Taylor. What did all these men at, who were the fathers of even the cartoons with Homer Simpson, then on into the 90s and this, this millennium, I forgot his name. I never watched this one. Peter Griffin. Um, that, what, what do all these guys have in common? Well, the male figure is no longer father knows best, right? For the past 25 years or so, it has been he's the doofus, he's the butt of the jokes, he doesn't know anything, and, you know, the wife is always smarter and more, you know, dominant in the family, and the kids are making fun of and disrespecting their dad and all of this. This is what we find as humor in our culture. And so this is part and parcel of the attack upon the family, because if you can take down the role of the father, if you can take down the role of the husband, then you end up with total confusion, like we end up with today with the uh, example of, of, of Jaden Smith being the new face of Louis Vuitton's women's wear. Now, the Bible is clear on that issue. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. You've read this scripture before, I'm sure. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. This is not according to God's plan, right? God has created them male and female. We'll talk more more about that when we get into the transgender thing in a moment, but... With regard to the push last year with the homosexual marriage 
Supreme Court decision, it reminded me of this Bible that was actually published because this is big even in Christian circles. I mean, there are Christian denominations promoting and saying this is okay and we're going to you know, give a nod to this and, and ignore what the scriptures have said about this. So are you familiar with the Queen James Bible? The Queen James, as a reference to you know, a, a spin-off and a play on words for, from the King James, this would be Queen James, and the scripture verses are literally just altered and changed. Here's Leviticus 18.22, which says, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is an abomination. Well, that's the verse. That's the, the literal render, rendering from the Hebrew you can see here. Notice the Queen James. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. In the temple of Molech, it is an abomination. So those words are just merely added and inserted into the text, nowhere in the Hebrew original. So what, the, the meaning has been changed, hasn't it? It now says that you can lie with mankind as with womankind as long as it's not in the temple of Molech, right? Is that what God was after with this text? Is that what he was after in Romans 1 when he said that, that God, the, the wrath of God is being revealed against all of the unrighteousness and wickedness of mankind because they gave up natural relations for, for same-sex relations? It, had, it said nothing about the temple of Moloch at all in Romans 1, and that's a New Testament scripture. But they go ahead and alter that, and this has implications for where we end up in understanding the institution of the family. But as the... Attack on, I, I did a, a series at the GYC of uh, the, the last year's GYC called Biblically Correct Masculinity and Understanding What It Means to Be Male in the 21st Century. I found it instructive and strange and interesting that the San Diego municipal employees for a time were, pro, were prohibited from using the phrase founding fathers. This is Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, of course, right? The founding fathers of the country were, were male, but we cannot refer to them as founding fathers because we're trying to reduce and diminish any patriarchal tendencies because we want to deny the role of masculinity. Even it goes further in the Ontario government forms where you list, you know, for birth certificates and so on, mother and father. They said we're going to eliminate the terms mother and father and just have guardian and guardian. And so gender is under attack, particularly masculinity, in our culture today. I found it kind of strange and odd that they had actual army cadets with, with this program. It was a walking a mile in red high heels. And I'm going, that's kind of a warping of the most, like, you know, male, masculine thing of the military. Not that I'm promoting militarism, but it's a symptom of the culture when you see that even that aspect of, of, of more of that masculine uh, expression now being feminized into the uh, walking of the, with the red high heels. Kind of a strange thing. But of course, when we end up all confused with regard to gender, we do end up with one of two expressions of masculinity, which are distortions of masculinity. And one of those is what you might call hyper-masculinity. Because men, the inundation of, of the culture upon the minds of, of, of children, of boys especially, on what it means to be male... You get confused, and so you're going to end up with one of two distortions that I'll show you in a moment. But first, this is Philip Zimbardo. Philip Zimbardo is a sociologist famous for the Stanford Prison Experiments. He came out a couple of years ago and said, we've got a really big problem with, with males, with young men, that they don't really know how to function as men, which is, this is part and parcel of the breakdown of the family, as I said, right? And, and so they did a, a study, a little survey, after the TED Talk that he gave, where on the TED Talk website you could, you could select a little vote, you know, what are the reasons for why 
young men are struggling so much? And, and what is it that has caused this distortion, this dysfunction, this inability to be leaders, to be you know, uh, able to be heads of families, to be committed in relationships? And, and George Barna talks about this in the church as well, how, how, how men are, are, are really AWOL in terms of spiritual leadership in the churches of, of today. But what, they, what the voters of just the general population on this TED Talk website, they said 63% of them said that the reason that we're getting so messed up in the head over this gender issue is conflicting messages from media, institutions, parents, and peers about acceptable male behavior. So in other words, we don't really know because we're getting all these different messages from all these different angles. So you know what the number one lesson so far is? If we want to have a clear and correct view of God's order, God's design, God's plan, then tune out all of the worldly cultural nonsense. Go to the word of God. Spend time with people that you know are following the Lord and you want to go in his footsteps along with the people of God and say no to all of this craziness from the culture. But if we accept what the culture has shared, then we're going to get very confused. I remember in 2004, I started teaching in 2003, and then I taught in a Christian school in 2004. And my students at the time were very clear on biblical marriage, on what God says about male and female, about you know homosexuality, and all of these things. And to the point where many of them were like too aggressive about it. I kind of would have to play the role of toning them down a little bit because they'd get so on fire about it to the point where you, can, you, know, you, you go overboard onto the other side of being unloving toward people. But fast forward 10 years. At the end of my teaching career in 2014, I was also teaching at a Christian school, this time an Adventist Christian school. And in a short span of 10 years, my students went, same age, same type of demographic, went from being super crystal clear on these things to my students were totally confused. And they're like, Mr. Ritzema, why is it wrong to do you know this or that? And you know why why can't we say this is just the way somebody is, and they ought to be able to live out the expressions of how they feel? And I'm going, are you serious, guys? Like you haven't studied this in the Bible? You don't know what the truth is on this? I mean, it totally just rocked my world that in a short period of time, the media had done such a number on attacking this precious institution called the family. So here are the two distortions and expressions when we get confused. When guys don't know what to do, they end up either as passive man. This is a new creature that has appeared upon the face of the earth. He is, uh, you've heard of the descent of man, right? Well, this guy is literally descending into what we call the man cave, right? And isn't it interesting about a cave? Like what, what, what lives in a cave would be an animal. So then we end up with also the secondary expression where we, 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 where we idolize egomaniacs and, and, and you know, uh, sports stars, as we call them, who are trying to one-up each other and thump their chest and run around like I'm King James and whatever, and literally the, some of the names they give themselves, right? So we've got two poles, two poles of men, and these are supposed to be the leaders of families and the heads of households and, and the priests of the home and and the, the, the pastors in the churches, and, and we're struggling. We're going, all right, I'm over here with passive man, or I'm going, you know, like, like overreacting back into that more militaristic mode of things. The Lord has an answer for this, and it's in his word. It's about unplugging from the media agenda and messages. But, you know, when it came to 2015, it, you know who the time person of the year runner-up was? Time person of the year was Angela Merkel, the uh, chancellor of Germany. Um, Caitlin Jenner. Bruce Jenner, the uh, transgender hero that was celebrated in the year 2015, was Time Person of the Year runner-up. 
And when we look at that, we're going, wow, there's something very serious going on in our culture that our children and all of us are subjected to. But the, the transgender thing started to take leaps into even more strange territories like you never would have thought you would see. And, you know, these things are happening so quickly is the amazing thing. It was like over an 18-month period of time. Like the whole country accepted this thing. And then other people started coming out and saying, and, and these people are promoted. They're, they're celebrated in news reports that this, this uh, and I feel so much sadness and empathy, and I want to cry for these people. But this poor lady said, well, you know, I've been inspired to come out as what I truly am, and that is I am transabled. I am actually a disabled person in a normal person's body, and I'm supposed to be blind. Isn't that tragic? And she literally blinded herself, and the BBC put this up as some, you know, big heroic thing that this lady did to express her true identity after she put Drano in her eyes. I mean, this is a serious spiritual sickness that our culture has, and we're looking at this, celebrating it in our culture today, and the other people say, you know, I'm actually an animal in a human being's body, and all of these strange expressions where, you know, and the, the children, I mean, how do you explain this to small children? That, I mean, this, this, is, this is a sad, sad, you might say, illness of, of, of spiritual and mental proportions. And, and God is a healer of all of this, right? But the moment you start saying things like that, well, that's, that's hateful speech. In fact, we'll get to that in just a moment, perceived as hateful speech. But it's not just a cultural uh, attack that's, that's warping the family and the gender roles and all of that. There's also a physiological aspect to this. There's a lot of talk in, in medical circles about the endocrine system as of late and, and how many endocrine disruptions there are within the human organism. The endocrine system, of course, is what regulates Hormones. The, the glands, the endocrine glands are releasing various different hormones. You have both androgens and estrogens. These would be the more male and the more female hormones. And if, if a man has an imbalance of you know, more female hormones and less male than normal, well, that starts to manifest in his physiology and so on and so forth. And so there are actual in endocrine disrupting chemicals and other uh, things in the foods that are, that are also messing with our human physiology. As well. So, in addition to the cultural, you know, brainwashing assaults, there's also a physiological aspect to that that's being explored right now. Now, uh, amazingly, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a foundational report, a meta-analysis, a massive study that was published in the New Atlantis. And this was a highly controversial controversial study. It was a 143-page report that just dissected and analyzed over 200 studies that have been done on the nature of homosexuality and the transgender experience and all of these things. And the researchers wanted to look at this objectively. They said, let's finally, once and for all, separate the fact from fiction, the cultural hype from the factual reality, so that we're not just swept away into this is the cultural trend, let's all go that way and let the science follow. They said, no, we want to be scientific about it. The researchers were Dr. Lawrence Mayer and Dr. Paul McHugh. They're not coming at this from a religious angle whatsoever. They're just looking at this from a scientific perspective. The report was called Sexuality and Gender Findings from the Biological, Physiological, and Social Sciences. And they did a study of all the studies 
200 plus studies on these issues. Dr. Mayer is a scholar in residence in the Department of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins University, very prestigious, and a professor of statistical and bio, statistics and biostatistics at Arizona State University. Dr. McHugh, who, whom the editor of the New Atlantis described as arguably the most important American psychiatrist of the last half century, is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and was for 25 years the psychiatrist-in-chief at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Okay, you've got the pedigree here. You understand that this is one of the biggest and most important studies from some of the most prestigious researchers you can find on this topic. And here are the four most important findings that they discovered and that they, they put out in this report. Number one, these are they've figured out what we know and what we don't know about these things. There are some things that aren't found out yet, and there's some things that we do know. And here's number one. The belief that sexual orientation is an innate, biologically fixed human property, property, in other words, that people are born this way, as Lady Gaga says, is not supported by scientific evidence. Okay, so that's the science, all right? This is, uh, that, that's not even a religious message. That's what the scientific researchers are finding. It happens to harmonize with the Bible, as all true science does. But this idea is not biologically fixed. That's something that is innately created and God-ordained. And now I'm putting spiritual terminology on it, of course. But the scientific terminology is the belief that sexual orientation is an innate, biologically fixed human property that people are born this way is not supported by scientific evidence. So these things can be transient. They can come, they can go, and many times they don't come and go. But there is no evidence that it is fixed biologically. Secondly, The belief that gender identity is an innate, fixed human property independent of biological sex so that a person might be a man trapped inside a woman's body or a woman trapped inside a man's body is not supported by scientific evidence. These guys are getting themselves in big trouble right now, by the way. This is good. You're just asking for the total onslaught of angry, politically correct, um, you know, critique and rebuke of what they're reporting. But they're, they're sticking with what the science has discovered. There's nothing supported in the scientific literature evidence that this idea of this is a, a fixed gender identity thing of being an actual man trapped inside a woman's body or vice versa, not scientific. Only Third, only a minority of children, this is an important one, only a minority of children who express gender atypical thoughts or behavior will continue to do so into adolescence or adulthood. There is no evidence that all such children should be encouraged to become transgender, much less subject, subjected to hormone treatments or surgery. If you're familiar with the researcher Camille Peglia, she's actually a transgender feminist scholar, okay? So she's got a little credibility on speaking to this. And she says that this is transgender mania that's happening. When you start to identify children at early ages as, you're, if you feel this, well, then you're this, and you promote that, and you encourage that, and you solidify that in their own mental structure and conception of themselves, you're messing with them. And then she says it's child abuse when you start putting hormone therapy uh, upon children. And the research here is showing the same thing because only a minority of children who express gender atypical thoughts or behavior will continue to do so into adolescence or adulthood. Let's say that the opposite way. The majority of children who have feelings of, you know, I feel this way or this way, the majority of them will not continue with those thoughts. So it is transient to a great degree. It comes, it goes to, for many people. And so you don't want to make this some 
protected thing and, and create a group out of it and, and, and huddle everybody into the group and say, you are the this group and, and you're the heroes of our age and we're going to make you and validate you into what you feel you are right now because what you feel you are right now can change according to the research. Fourth, non-heterosexual and transgender people have higher rates of mental health problems, anxiety, depression, suicide, as well as behavioral and social problems, substance abuse, intimate partner violence. They have more of that than the general population. And discrimination, you know, we're discriminated against and we're oppressed, so we have all of these, you know, suicidal thoughts and violence in in the home. Discrimination alone does not account for the entire disparity. So they're saying you can't blame the fact that it's a, a discriminated against minority for all of these social and psychological problems, they're inherent in the lifestyle, in other words. I'm, I'm adding to what they said, but that would be the only logical conclusion beyond the discrimination is that there's something physiologically, something sociological, something mental that is hurting and damaging them. I would call it spiritual, and we know that that is the case, and it's a sad thing. It's not something that now we're, we're going on a culture war, and we're, you know, proving everybody wrong, and we're going to shut them down, and we're going to go on some sort of agenda to, to push people around. No, not at all. We want to get the facts right so that we can, in a loving way, share truth with everybody on a broad sense, on an individual sense, as you've been learning in some of the other, some of the other breakouts. But how about this one? With the, with the tra- transgender movement so, so aggressive over the past year, we had Target came out and said, we're not going to have any boys or girls labeled clothing or toys. Like there's no more boys section, girls section, because you don't want to you don't want to put upon a child what their gender expression should be. Like a boy can be a girl and a girl can be a boy. So we're not going to have the sections separated anymore. But then they went even further and they said, now we have a bathroom of your choice policy. You've heard about this in the news, I'm sure. Target came out and said that they'll, the, anybody can go in whichever bathroom they feel is theirs. And that causes some problems. They said changing rooms also. You can go in whatever changing room you want. And then there was this report of this this pervert this guy who had, who was taking pictures of yeah anyway the guy in the in the wrong place and that is kind of what you'd expect in that context but I, I I went to this organic restaurant once and a lot of times when you go to you know a healthy health food store or a healthy restaurant it's like they've got great vegan organic stuff and it's awesome but then sometimes the worldview is a little a little at odds with what we might believe from the Bible and it was kind of a, an amazing eye-opening moment for me to see how far this thing had been pushed through in such a short period of time when I went to the restroom to wash my hands before the meal and I noticed that there were two restrooms and both of them were, were labeled as, as you know, non-gender. And I'm like, I, normally when there's two, you'll have a male and a female, right? And then sometimes if there's a third, you'll have like a family restroom or something. Or if there's only one restroom, then obviously it would be a unisex restroom. But there was two, and they were both gender neutral. And I'm like, huh, that's kind of strange. So I went and asked. <laughs> and I, I, I said, you know, I didn't want to show all my cards because I didn't want them to know who I was and what I was all about because then my food might not be prepared as nicely or whatever. But I didn't want to start a fight with anybody. So I just asked it neutrally. I said... Is the, is the thinking behind the bathroom setup to have, you know, to have them both gender neutral, is that an effort to, you know, be sensitive to the LBGT community and, and all of that, or the transgender community is, I think, how I put it. And, the, and she, the lady behind the counter got this look on her face like, yeah, righteous indignation moment. And she goes, yeah, we are definitely not the kind of restaurant that would put male on one of the bathrooms and female on the other. Like, that would be this horribly offensive 
just hateful thing to do to have male and female identified. You know, Target says we're, ed- we're moving, removing boys and girls. We're removing it from the bathroom labels here. And if we didn't do that, I mean, that would be some sort of absolutely just vicious, you know, bigoted thing for us to do, to, to identify male and female. I mean, if somebody doesn't feel that way, that might, that might upset them. And so, of course, we have to just remove male and female from the Ontario government forms, no more mother and father. How about this one from the University of Kansas? Their student senate came out in their rules and regulations, and they said, you may not use in student senate business any gendered pronouns. You can't even use the word he or she, him or her. It's against their code of conduct in the student senate. I mean, it's crazy and tragic and evil, and and also kind of, you know, you have to almost laugh at something absurd. It's not funny, though, is it? It's really a nefarious agenda that's trying to annihilate anything gender-related. And so that's what's going on there at, at, the, uh, at the University of Kansas. They call it a microaggression. If you say the word he, then you're, having a, you're exercising a microaggression against somebody who might, not, who might be a he and feel like a she or in between or whatever. It, you're, you're, it's an act of aggression, which is an amazing term to use. Because coming from a political science background, the word aggression has an important connotation in legal settings. An act of aggression is something that is a criminal act where you're violating someone else's person or property. So when speech or thoughts or ideas start to become micro aggressions, well, you're starting to bring this into the legal realm and starting, well, if we use that terminology for it, then maybe we should have hate speech legislation like they have in Western Europe and in Canada, where if you say something about homosexuality that's not welcomed by certain people, then that's hate speech, and it's literally against the law. Now, in America, we have the First Amendment, so we still have some freedom on that, but this is on the way out. Take a look at this one from a actual uh, university diversity and inclusion PowerPoint that's put out as a way to you know, teach us how to be sensitive and, and think about what, what microaggressions are. Now, I skipped through the microaggressions part just to get the portion where they said, now, beyond microaggressions, like beyond saying something about, you know, calling somebody who's transgender by their biological pronoun, you know, that's a microaggression. But beyond that, there are also assaults. Now, notice what, now that's a definitely a legal term, right? An assault, that's a criminal act, right? Notice, okay, a student slashed my tire on my car. Oh, yeah, that is an assault. Yeah, that was a, that's an actual criminal act of uh, violating someone's property. How about this one? Almost being raped. Yeah, absolutely. Rape is an act of aggression and evil, violent assault. I'm not sure what they mean by almost, but we're definitely in aggression and assault territory there. But notice some of these other ones. Um, an anti-abortion person attacked my pro-choice beliefs. See, beliefs are now assaulted, and it's an assault. So if you disagree with somebody's viewpoint on something in a formerly free country with open exchange of ideas on campuses especially, if somebody, quote, if you're perceiving it as an attack on my beliefs, then it's called an assault. Or uh, I was verbally abused because I am bisexual. Now, of course, we wouldn't ever want to attack somebody's belief. We would never want to verbally abuse somebody. But you can imagine scenarios where simply holding to a position in a loving way can be perceived by some as being an attack and a verbal abuse. And so these are now assaults. Now, this whole thing about the, um, the gender and all of this, I, I was, another quick story, I was talking with a uh, friend who has been a part of child development studies and, and research and, and getting into the educational world. And she said to me, you know, one of the most interesting trends as of late is helping children to, you know, not, 
be able to define their own reality, where you don't define things for them. So you say they're, they're playing with a, with a toy airplane. You know, you don't say to them and define that toy as a toy airplane. Allow them to determine what this object is for them so that they can conclude that it's something totally different. It, maybe it's a sock or maybe it's, you know, breakfast or I don't know. You could imagine a million things that it is other than a toy airplane. And as I was thinking about this, I'm going, this is, you know, I, I understand like kids playing, pretend and stuff like that. But there's something more going on here with this because the next thing she said was, of course. And if they're playing with a little girl doll with long hair, you don't say, and this is a girl and this is a boy. And I was like, I knew that we were going there with this. Why does everything have to come back to this these days? You know, there's nothing wrong with my, you know, my son taking his airplane and being like, my airplane's going to be like a truck or whatever. Okay, we don't have to be fanatical about things. But, but when, when we're, it's really an attack on reality. It's, a, it's, a, it's a actually redefining of reality. There is no object. You know, this is postmodern moral relativism. It's relativism of even reality. I mean, th- this podium is not actually a podium. It's just perceived as one. You know, it's all this crazy postmodern philosophy that is infecting now the child development, the preschool, where they're saying, don't say it's an airplane. That's oppressive. You know, I have to allow them freedom to choose what it is for them. Let them decide their own gender and all of these things. Now, this is in the classroom of children really moving on. In the UK, teen students are now given 25 options of genders to identify as on their little uh, bullet, you know, um, fill in the, the bubbles, um, you know, notations of, of their, their, their identity and their, their location. They have 25 options of what gender you are. Nebraska public schools uh, have, have instructed teachers to ask kids what pronouns they want to be called. Like, would you like to be he or would you like to be she? Or would you like to be Z? They have a new one that has been invented for neut- neutral pronouns, Z-E or Z-I. Um, and they say, don't, don't, I don't group the kids as, all right, um, boys and girls come to the playground. Or the boys over here, the girls over here have different groups and say, these are the purple penguins and these are the, you know, we're just no more gender stuff. Alber- that was Nebraska. Alberta guidelines in public schools throughout the whole province of Alberta and Canada say bathroom of your choice policies. Of course, those are, those are coming across this country. A federal government edict even came down saying all schools who receive Title IX funding must do this as well. And a lot of the schools are not doing it, but the, the um, expectation is there. But in Alberta, it was a province-wide situation where similar things also happening in this country. I'll skip through some of that. But oh, in New York, New York City... Uh, There was a a regulation laid down where employers, employers who refer to transgender workers by their birth gender pronouns or names would be would would receive a fine from from the government. So when we look at the the issue of freedom of speech in the as this as this you know, uh, gender thing is, is interpreted as being a hate speech related issue and all of this, it really comes down to a religious liberties issue, right? And we want to look at that topic because when it comes to freedom of conscience and religious liberties, you want to allow people, they can, you know, they can believe crazy things, right? And it's, we're not trying to come back with, with force and coercion in, in the other direction. We want to see freedom of conscience as the First Amendment would say. But here's from, from the Daily Caller. The University of Texas at Austin Police Department issued a disorderly co- conduct citation to an outdoor preacher on Tuesday after students complained that his message had offended them. And by the way, what he was saying may have been offensive. 
So we don't necessarily have to even defend what he was saying. But here he got a disorderly conduct citation for offending people through his, through his preaching. The preacher who was standing just off campus recorded his interaction with several university police officers who explained that it was illegal for him to offend the students. Here's the conversation. The preacher says, does freedom of speech protect offensive speech? In other words, he means, does the First Amendment protection of freedom of speech, does the First Amendment protect offensive speech? Which, of course, it must, otherwise you wouldn't need the First Amendment, right? You wouldn't need an amendment in the Bill of Rights saying speech is protected if only uh, permissive, uh, permitted speech and non-offensive speech was being, was being uh, spoken. It's because there is some speech that needs protecting that some people don't want to have out there that you have to have the First Amendment protection, right? So he asks, does freedom of speech protect offensive speech? Answer, the officer says, it doesn't matter, freedom of speech. Someone was offended, that's against the law. It's against the law to offend somebody? The officer says, yes. So this is a new time in which we live, a redefinition of freedom of conscience and freedom of speech. By the way, we'd never want to deliberately offend somebody. That goes without saying, but I want to make sure to have the little disclaimers so we don't become imbalanced in this, that, you know, we would never want to intentionally, for the purpose of just being provocative, offend somebody. But sometimes the Bible is going to cross people's personal preferences, isn't it? And so when we live and preach and promote the biblical truth of present time, this will inevitably become perceived as offensive by some. And so we always want to protect even freedom of speech that other people would not, uh, would not like to hear. University tells students to report incidents of discomfort to campus police. The University of Portland has launched a Speak Up webpage that encourages students to report, quote, incidents of discomfort to its public safety department. We ask members of our community to speak up and report alleged incidents of discrimination and incidents of discomfort regarding observed or experiences interactions of intolerance, the university states on the webpage. I never thought we'd be seeing the day so quickly, so soon, where they would be saying, we're going to report to the public safety department if, you, if something that is said makes you feel uncomfortable. Discomfort is now something that it becomes an issue for public safety. But it, got, it went even further with the, um, the, the, where was it? Here we go with uh, the Missouri University police, where they came out and said, call the police immediately. This was an email sent out to all students, Missouri University Police Department. Call the police immediately if you witness any incidents of hateful and or hurtful speech or actions. So if somebody, if there is speech or actions that is that hurts somebody's feelings, then that then you call the police. Isn't that a, this is a strange world we live in? It's like we're calling the police about this. I mean, we never want to hurt somebody's feelings. That's not nice. You'd never ever want to hurt somebody's feelings. Uh, you know, if God, I, sometimes God hurts my feelings, like, and He does it because He loves me. But I'm not out there to hurt anybody's feelings. And if the Lord wants to do that to somebody, that that's a good thing because sometimes He wakes us up out of our out of our uh, selfishness. But the amazing thing is that as it relates to religious liberty and freedom of conscience now, you have universities saying, call the police if somebody's feelings get hurt. Filmmaker Amy Horowitz spent uh, less than an hour on Yale University campus doing a fake uh, signature petition experiment. Now, I don't endorse you know, using these sorts of methods of, of I'm pretending and faking and deceiving people. I don't, I don't think that's right. But he did this, this survey and this, this little experiment, and, and the results are telling. They are amazing. He asked people on Yale University's campus, okay, these are the best and the brightest. These are the people that you'd expect to really have a solid understanding of what it means for the foundations of American uh, principles of freedom and liberty. And he asked them, would you sign this petition 
please, to prohibit and outlaw free speech on the campus because there are things being said that are hurtful to people, that people don't like to hear. So can we ban the First Amendment? He used phrases like this, in his, and he's got a video recorded. and will you, It's like a hidden camera thing, and he takes his fake signature petition uh, on the sheet, and a full uh, 50 signatures were collected in less than an hour, and the majority of the students signed to ban free speech, ban the First Amendment on the Yale University campus. Now that's, that was really shocking and <laughs> horrifying and amazing and instructive as we zoom toward Revelation 13 and oppressive measures that are coming. In Europe, people are being arrested for offensive Facebook posts. One officer appeared at somebody's doorstep and said, Sorry, this, the, the person that appeared at the doorstep is just in a minute. This was the officer that spoke with the media, and this was in Scotland. He said, I hope that the arrest of this individual sends a clear message that police in Scotland will not tolerate any form of activity which could incite hatred and provoke offensive con- comments on social media. So any behavior that might provoke somebody else to make an offensive comment is not tolerated. Any behavior that is going to provoke, that might provoke somebody else to make an offensive comment is not permitted in Scotland, a Danish man was convicted and fined for a Facebook post in which he compared Islam to Nazism. He was convicted and fined for making that comparison historically. A British preacher was arrested and tried for calling Islam satanic. A Dutch man was also, also received a home visit from the police after he criticized his country's open borders refugee policy. He said it was a bad plan on Twitter. And they came and they showed up. They said, you tweet a lot. We have orders to ask you to watch your tone. Your tweets may seem seditious. So these are free countries, right? This is the West. I mean, this kind of sounds like East Germany. This kind of sounds like the Soviet bloc. This kind of sounds like the Stasi. But here you have in the West, in the free West, freedom of speech under attack. But it's not just Europe. It's, it's really getting worse there. But in America, in Boston, Massachusetts, there was a Catholic school that hired a man for the um, cafeteria department. And it turned out that they found out later that the man was homosexual. And they, they'd hired him without realizing that or, or recognizing that early on. And so they dismissed him and they said, you know, this is our Catholic religious all-girls school and we don't want to promote alternate lifestyles in, 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 in this school. Well, of course, this became a lawsuit and... The, the school lost, and they were required to hire the man and pay all, you know, a bunch of money and all that. The, there was, you have no, of course, know about the, the bakers, the, the cake bakers who, you know, a homosexual couple will come saying, we want a cake for our wedding, and this is the big famous, you know, cases in the, in the courts. And they get fined, you know, $135,000 fine or whatever for not catering to homosexuals because that, that would be not equal opportunity. T-shirt printers who, you know, promote... Christian messages on their and their t-shirt company well homosexual activists will find out you know hey they're they're um, they're they're potentially going to reject us so let's go and ask them to you know put a rainbow you know gay pride t-shirt together for us and they refuse and it becomes a lawsuit $13,000 fine so i mean these kind of things go on and on and on in the united kingdom they're actually moving to register all Sunday schools. Government registered all Sunday schools. There was, um, speaking of the religious freedom issues, uh, the Wachita Hills canvassing group uh, were prohibited a little while back from going door-to-door and canvassing, needing to obtain a permit and go through a whole bunch of um, regulations and, and paying and so on. And when, when, when you need to receive a permit for something, that means that you're getting permission for it, which means that it's no longer a right, but it's been transmitted into a privilege instead of a right. So the Bill of Rights 
Maybe we'll call them the Bill of Privileges now. I don't know. But this is getting more serious when it comes to what the Pope said. The mental structure of fundamentalists is violence in the name of God. He said a fundamentalist group, which, by the way, a fundamentalist group is anybody who believes literally in their inspired book. So you can have fundamentalist Jews, fundamentalist Muslims. We are fundamentalist Christians because we live, we believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible. Six-day creation. Jesus literally raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. Jesus is literally coming on the clouds of heaven. This is a historically accurate book, and prophecy is foretelling real and actual events that are to come. So that's a fundamentalist group. A fundamentalist group, although it may not kill anyone, although it may not strike anyone, so you could have like a fundamentalist group that promotes non-combatancy and non-violence, right? Like ours. So how, how about this one? A fundamentalist group, he says, although it may not kill anyone, although it may not strike anyone, is violent. Did you, did you catch that? So if you're a fundamentalist, if, you know, you're, you're, you're a Mennonite or Amish, you know, fundamentalist, you know, ultra anti-combatancy group. If you're a fundamentalist, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, non-combatant believer, you are violent. Make sense of that. Well, it's the mental structure of fundamentalists is violence in the name of God. Violence is now the new word. Remember, it's an assault to believe differently about somebody's sexual or abortion beliefs we saw earlier, right? That's an assault. So it's violence to believe Differently, because when you believe in what the Bible says, well, then you believe in Romans 1, and you believe in I am the way, the truth, and the life, and you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, which then implicitly says that other people that don't believe in this have to accept this in order to be saved. Well, that's all of a sudden a divisive and hateful message, and it's violence is what it's being called, because it's not open arms, one world religion, accepting of everything. But it it goes even further with Kathleen Taylor, the neuroscientist, who was... um, who came out and said the following at a convention. She said, one of the surprises may be to see people with certain beliefs. She's an Oxford University researcher, and she said, one of the surprises may be that we're going to see in the near future is to see people with certain beliefs as people who can be treated. So this is talking about psychiatry, okay? People with certain beliefs are people who can be treated. Someone who has, for example, become radicalized to a cult ideology, we might stop seeing that as a personal choice that they have chosen as a result of pure free will, and we may start treating it as some kind of mental disturbance. In many ways, it could be a very positive thing because there are no doubt beliefs in our society that do a whole lot of damage. So any beliefs that can be defined by officialdom as being cult ideologies and damaging beliefs, there's no longer a freedom and a choice there. They're saying, you've been radicalized by a cult ideology. And in the near future, we can treat this as a mental disturbance rather than freedom of conscience. So it's violence. It's mental disturbances. You're hearing the themes continue. Wow. So speaking of mental disturbances, this one came out. Feds want all teens screened for depression. The federal task force is recommending that pediatricians and family doctors do mental health screenings for all students over 12 years old regularly. So all students in the public schools getting regular mental screenings. You can imagine where this could go in the near future based upon what Kathleen Taylor just told us, right? Which re- this reminds me of 2002 legislation that was put out. This, this was, there was an effort to do this years ago as well. 
It was called the New Freedom Initiative, and it basically would require universal national mental health screenings for, of every child in the country. It was called the New Freedom Initiative. And they wanted to get children at a very young age under these mental health screenings so that they could be defined according to various different diagnoses and so on. Which getting them at a very early age reminds me of yesterday's presentation, right, on schooled. The whole thing about the disruption of the family. I mean, this is all the, basically the same theme. And it reminds me of the book It Takes a Village by Hillary Rodham Clinton where we read the following quotation. Imagine a country in which nearly all children between the ages of three and five attend preschool in sparkling classrooms with teachers recruited and trained as child care professionals. More than 90% of French children between ages three and five attend free or inexpensive preschools called école maternelle. I don't know how to say that in French. My wife would help me out with that, but... Even before they reach the age of three, so they're two. Even before they reach the age of three, many of them are in full-day programs. So this is painted as some sort of like dream world. Imagine a world where all children from age three and up and sometimes even age two are handed over to professionals in sparkling classrooms. How beautiful and wonderful would this be? This is a nightmare scenario of dystopic proportions that bring us right to Revelation 13 type of stuff of the control of the minds of the population and the destruction of the family. You know, the Bible prophecy says that in the last days, the hearts of the children will be returned to the hearts of the fathers and vice versa, that there will be a restoration of the family. The devil knows that. This is why he's moving on all fronts. In fact, um, this, this one came out on a, another hidden camera. Have you noticed like the last year, year and a half, it's kind of been like the age of, of leaks and hidden cameras and hacks and all of this stuff coming out. It's, it's as if there's something going on behind the scenes. But this was um, the West Coast sales manager of one of the nation's biggest school book sellers, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And she told an uncover uh, journalist who she didn't know was a journalist again use of deception not endorsing it but this is what was found she said quote I hate kids I'm in it to sell books Diane Barrow said of her advocacy for common core she said don't even kid yourself for a heartbeat she said quote it's all about the money what are you crazy it's all about the money you don't think that the educational publishing companies are in it for education, do you? No, they're in it for the money. Now, she's a representative of these publications, sort of admitting what they are doing. And in her words, I hate kids. Um, now, sometimes it's an attempted altruistic effort, like, we're going to get them young. Said at NPR's Barbara King asked evolutionist who put out this book uh, called Grandmother Fish. She asked him, aren't kids of this age too little to be taught evolution? My answer is no, not too young. We all know now that more than 40% of Americans say that God created human beings in our present form in the last 10,000 years. That dismal situation cries out for big efforts in science education. And there's hard evidence to show that the storybook route can be effective in kids' mastery of evolutionary concepts. P.Z. Myers, an ardent atheist and outspoken evolutionist, praised this book by Mr. T uh, Mr. Tweet, is his name. And uh, the ev evolutionist P.Z. Myers said, This book is a great idea. Get them young, he wrote on his blog. Get them young. 
Okay, then of course the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the U.S. Department of Education put out a draft report, and this came out last fall. I read the whole government document. If you ever want to do something for fun, don't read government policy papers because they're deliberately dry and using academic, you know, mumbo-jumbo and jargon. And I'm just like just wading through this thing, highlighting key phrases and words. And you kind of have to know the lingo a little bit. But let me explain what this draft document is. This is a policy directive coming from federal departments on down to county and, you know, social service departments, child protective service departments, school districts, etc. And they're saying what we need to do is, the name, of the, the name of the document is Draft Policy Statement on Family Engagement. So this term family engagement is key in this report. And the name of it is From the Early Years to the Early Grades. They go in and say, basically, when we get children at age four in, or age three in preschool or age five in kindergarten or whatever, when we get the kids, they've already had a lot of influence at home from the parents. So what we want to do is family engagement. We want to engage families with their, well, it says, when does family engagement begin is the question that's posed. Family engagement begins, I'm quoting now, family engagement begins prenatally. So pregnant moms are now engaged with government involvement here to form, quote, relationships is the word that they used, a formal partnership with social services and mental health consultants. So no longer is the family a a, a relatively sovereign, autonomous uh, unit created by God where the children are raised in this, no, it's going to be some, some meddling happening if this policy report were to become reality. And it is reality to a great extent, obviously, through the school system, but from the early years, prenatally, babyhood, toddlerhood, and on up, they talk about, quote, conducting periodic home visits of families and having mental health consultants involved with professionals and specialists, ensuring constant monitoring of children's social, emotional, and behavioral needs. And even taking a look at the diet of the family. So you can imagine, like just what happened in Italy, there was a bill promoted, uh, pro- proposed in, in Italy saying that if parents are uh, uh, feeding their children a vegan diet, that those parents can have their children taken and they can be arrested. And that, that bill hasn't passed that I know, but that was a, a bill that was actually introduced into the Italian legislature saying that feeding your children a vegan diet could become a criminal act in Italy. So here in this report saying also we need to take a look at what parents are doing, you know, because there's some, there's some radical, you know, diets out there we might need to crack down on. Now, of course, by the way, it should be as a strong proviso, there are situations of terrible neglect and children, you know, not even being fed and terrible abuse. And so when there are criminal situations like that, of course, we acknowledge Romans 13, I mean, the state has been given the authority to punish the wrongdoer. So we don't want to take that away. But this is also a danger and a threat upon the religious liberty of families when you look at a policy report like this saying that there's going to be constant monitoring and home visits of families. Special emphasis is put on early childhood to, quote, prepare children for school to transition them to kindergarten. You know, I wonder if part of this report came out about because there is a growing homeschool movement where the children aren't being taught about here having a positive attitude towards school. (laughs) That's in the report. It says we want to teach the toddlers and the the children to have a positive attitude about being transitioned into kindergarten, into our system. 
Now, of course, I'm presenting this with, you know, unfair, fairly with, a, with an overlay of an, an understanding that there is a nefarious agenda here. But, of course, there are good people trying to do good things within these departments. So not, not to try and libel every person involved with this, but you know that the devil is involved with this. You know that this can be used for evil, and this is a great danger as well. Um, it, it says also that they want to implement evidence-based parenting interventions. So they kind of watch the parenting, do some interventions, and refer families to social services as needed. That was one of the most horrific horror stories that I've read in quite some time. I gave up watching, watching you know, sci-fi movies and horror movies and so on like that. But sometimes when you read history or you read government documents, it's like you're reading something straight out of a, a you know, dystopic fiction novel or some type of horror movie. So... Um, when you look at the, uh, the history of this, many people have noted that, you know, if we're going to get to the point in history where Revelation 13 indicates that there will be a religious imposition of, of, of coercion and oppression. You know what I mean by this? It's not necessarily going to be secular humanists with some sort of, you know, progressive agenda of Darwinistic, you know, all of this this worldly stuff, it's going to have a religious overlay to it in Revelation 13. So how, where is this going? I want to do a little historical moment, and then you'll see how this compares with the present. Do you remember the 1960s and 70s? I I remember it as a historian. I wasn't there, but some of you were there. Some of you have studied this. The 60s and 70s was a time of tremendous moral corruption and the decline and degradation of the morals of the society. And at the same time, 1970s was a very unpopular Supreme Court decision that made Christians feel like uh, our traditions and our understanding of a moral society and our culture is under attack and they're killing babies and they're bringing out around the hippie movement and the drugs and the rock and roll. And the, the Christian sector of the country, the moral majority, majority, became much more active, much more vocal. And there was a whole movement formed called what you might call the religious right. You might call the, the, the moral majority, the Christian coalition groups were formed saying, we're going to take America back for God. And we will use the legislative ballot box and we will be using the coercive force of government. They might not use words like that, but basically we're going to use the imposition of force to impose a Christian way upon the country. And this is the kind of worldview called dominion theology. Dominion theology holds that the Christian ought to reclaim all of the dominion that was lost, and that includes rulership. We want to be the rulers of the civil structures, of the political structures of the nation and of the world, and then we will enforce biblical law. That's that's a very prominent theological school of thought in in many different circles today and it was promoted in the 70s by a a guy named R.J. Rush Dooney and it was promoted by others in the political realm like folks you see on the screen there but uh, how how could this get to the Sunday law type of thing you know you're you're thinking all right where is this going well you 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 had back then a very uh, aggressive cultural agenda in the 60s followed by a, a very unpopular Supreme Court decision And then the reactionary wing against that said, we're going to take America back for God, right? And that's great. We want to take America back for God. But let's do it through the family. Let's do it through the one sole audience. Let's do it through evangelism, not through force and through political means. But that was the reaction. Did you see how it went? Problem, reaction, solution. You had the problem presented by the the secular push and the, the immoral crusade to be followed by then the reactionary wing saying we're going to take a Christian crusade right back at you and you can see the fusion of this coming to a head back then. Well, at the time people were like, this sounds a lot like Sunday Law type of stuff and they were right. Well, then we got on into the 90s and into the 2000s and what has been the era that we are in now? A era of tremendous moral corruption. Just the last few years, an aggressive push, some of the stuff we've seen here, right? 
right? And the shutting down of any dissent against it. And also a very unpopular Supreme Court decision saying, you know, uh, no state may, may prohibit homosexual marriage anymore. So what's the pattern from his- history? Cultural de- degradation plus very unpopular Supreme Court decision, among Christians at least, leads to a reactionary religious right political response. So are we witnessing that? Are we going to witness that in the very near future in our culture today? Yes, especially in the context of disaster. I mean, do you remember what happened after 9-11? What happened the next Sunday? Everybody was in church, weren't they? And boy, that can be a good thing when people get religious real quick in the context of, of crisis, but can also be a very dangerous thing because there's counterfeit religion all around. And like this one right here, Arizona State Senator Sylvia Allen in 2014 said, there has been a horrible erosion of the soul of America. She said, we are, actually this was 2015, I believe. We are slowly eroding religion at every opportunity we have. That's true, right? I mean, this is a problem. Probably we should be, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) debating a bill requiring every American to attend a church of their choice on Sunday to see if we can get back to having a moral rebirth. It sounds so outlandish. Nobody would ever say such a thing. They're saying it, right? You know, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. That is God's design for the family. That is God's design for male and female. And according to God's beautiful blueprint for the family, and we'll talk more about that after the, after the break in the next session. We'll talk about parenting. We'll talk about family by God's design and God's blueprint because we're heading toward the close of this message. But as we th- think through some of the things that we've seen here, I want to close with a, just a nice little story that will warm our hearts a little bit because this has, again, been pretty ominous. Just like yesterday, session one was like, ah, oh, the worldly schooling agenda. Whew. All right, let's look at the blueprint. Today it's like, man, the onslaught of, against religious liberty and the cultural degradation and all this. But, you know, there's still things that even secular people identify as just pure and beautiful and an okay thing here in the context of gender. This was reported on ChristianNews.net. And the story goes like this. A little boy in California recently stood up to a man after witnessing the stranger catcalling and cursing out a woman who was out for a run. The woman happened to be secular singer-songwriter Julia Price, who shared her story on Facebook last week in explaining how much the child had made an impression on her. She explained that she was out for a run on November 18. As she was out for a run on November 18, a man loudly began catcalling at her, sexy lady, hey, 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 sexy lady. Price ignored the man and kept on running, which in turn made the catcaller angry. He began to curse her out, spewing profanities. Well, she says, I ripped off my headphones, prepared to stand up for myself, but a little boy nearby only identified as James, was watching the incident as he walked with his mother and younger sister. James spoke up to defend Price, who was just a stranger to him, thinking that a man should always protect a woman. Hey, that's not nice of you to say to her, and she didn't like you yelling at her. You shouldn't do that because she is a nice girl, and I don't let anyone say mean things to people, James declared to the man. She's a girl like my sister, and I will protect her. The man who had been eating lunch outside then became embarrassed and gathered his items to leave. Price asked the mother if she could hug the child to tell him thank you. 
I told him how grateful I was for him, she recalled. He just shrugged and said, well, I just wanted to make sure your heart was okay. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Here's a statement from Spirit of Prophecy Councils to the church. The Lord has constituted the husband, the head of the wife, to be her protector. You know, some of these things that we hold to as the biblical idea of gender, that you can go overboard with a lot of that, and there's been patriarchal oppression in the past, but there's also something still pure and beautiful about headship, about God's design for the family, about this whole beautiful picture that's a, a witness and a testimony of what God is like. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the family is meant to image that beautiful picture of God's character of love. And so we'll end it there on a positive note. And as we come back, how is God restoring the family? How is that prophecy being fulfilled that says that the hearts of the fathers will be turned to the children and the children to the fathers and daughters and mothers and fathers to daughters and mothers to sons, of course, as well. The restoration of the family. How do we get that back in God's plan, in His hands, in our homes? And so we'll look at that in that next session. So let's close in prayer, shall we? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the beauty of your blueprint for, for gender, for family, for the roles you've assigned to us to reflect your glory and your love. And as each one of us serves and sacrifices ourselves for one another, and as we seek to reach the lost with, with a voice of love and never with condemnation or some sort of cultural crusade or, or political agenda, may we always have the Spirit of Christ in our hearts and in our midst. And, and also, Father, we do pray that you would preserve religious conscience and freedom of, and, and the liberty of, of religion that we have left. We know that we have much freedom, but it is under attack. And we just pray for, for a time to do the work, for, for a motivation. Help us to reach that one soul audience while we still can, for we know that the time is indeed short. We thank you for this time we've had together, and may your name be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.